You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. Um, so welcome, everybody. This is uh, Meditation and Attachment. Uh, this is the DYP class or the Deep Into Your Practice class. It is November 19th, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And I thought I'd shift gears uh, just for a couple of weeks. I'm going to be doing a weekend retreat with the Recovery Dharma Collective, um, uh, going over the curriculum around addiction that we have. And so I thought that I would introduce it here, the um, an interesting subject uh, in our country because of the way that uh, it has been politicized. Um, I don't know if you know your history of addiction uh, in this country, but um, at the end of the Second World War, which was 1945, so uh, quite a long time ago, um, there was no real international trafficking in, in, in illegal drugs because the military controlled all of the ports in the West. Uh, and and also in Asia. So they um, really had eliminated uh, trafficking in opioids and uh, the different drugs that come over. Um, and then because the Cold War began and the intelligence services engaged that, um, one of the things that they did in Asia was to take a payment of uh, narcotics from the different people that they were involved with and so that they, they realized that as they were stockpiling these drugs that they needed to open up the, the drug markets again so that they could uh, recoup some of their cash. And um, what the next major thing that happened was uh, during the Vietnam War, so this is again going back uh, to the, the 60s, um, there was a, a um, significant trade within the t intelligence communities with the, the drug lords. You, um, Vietnam is in the area that's been called the Golden Triangle because the growing conditions for the poppy are so um, perfect. Um, it also turned out that a high number of the soldiers that were in Vietnam and in those wars uh, developed a, an addiction to opioids and so uh, when they came back from the war, uh, the intelligence community opened up the drug markets in the U.S., um, largely supplying the, um, the substances themselves as a way of uh, uh, circulating the, the capital they had tied up in it. The government has always been involved in controlling the flow of illicit drugs in this country based on enforcement. And so You'll notice in, in, in peaks of uh, or periods of unrest, the, the, the enforcement of uh, substances is uh, lax and in, in, in times of greater uh, cohesion, they're tightened. Um, we have uh, probably a much less intense uh, illicit drug trade than we do just um, alcohol. Um, probably, I think the number I read last was uh, 90 million people in the U.S. use alcohol and about 10 million of them are uh, heavy drinkers. We don't really have a, uh, 
the US government does not classify alcoholism, what they classify as chronic heavy drinking. And uh, the way that they define that is somebody who consumes 58 ounces of alcohol per month if they're male and half that amount if they're female. Um, we also have a, a corporate culture that externalizes costs as a way of being profitable. So that for instance, uh, if you use alcohol, which is a highly addictive substance and you become dependent on it, the companies that manufacture and supply the alcohol are not responsible for providing care for you. That happens the same uh, with the tobacco companies, the same with the pharmaceutical companies. That tends to fall on, on um, all of the taxpayers to pay for that treatment in some way or, or in the private healthcare uh, industry. Um, the problem of pharmaceuticals in this country, and particularly with uh, highly addictive pharmaceuticals like opioids or benzodiazepines or uh, whatever the substances are, is that um, the, the change over the, the last uh, probably 30 years in terms of enforcement of that um, uh, The CDs, the FDA began to allow the use of opioids for chronic pain, which became uh, uh, the current uh, opioid uh, pandemic, not pandemic, epidemic that we have now. With the pandemic in place, one of the things that is no longer in the news is the number of ODs, but the number of ODs from opioids has skyrocketed. Uh, we're probably close to the number of people that we've lost in to the pandemic, to people that we've lost from uh, ODs, from opiates. Um, there was a confluence of um, uh, things that happened that made this happen in our country. If you remember uh, in um, the 60s and 70s, the main source of uh, heroin, which is um, uh, the, the previous uh, drug of choice, which was China White, which came from the Golden Triangle, mainly through Europe, uh, it was controlled by the, the old European uh, organized crime groups, mainly came in through New York and then was distributed across the country. Um, the current uh, uh, addiction opioid uh, epidemic is not driven by the China white that comes through New York. It's mainly the Mexican tar heroin and the, the pharmaceuticals that, that are distributed, which is a, a completely different change or complete uh, difference to the way that it used to be because uh, there was so much pressure on the illegality of these drugs, uh, they were uh, typically uh, confined to uh, lower income neighborhoods where there was already a lot of uh, intrinsic crime. And the advent of the pharmaceutical um, um, version or the first wave of the current uh, opioid addiction here was driven by pharmaceutical companies distributing it legally to, uh, and this change in, into a, a something that could be used to 
to treat chronic pain, which actually began to happen in the 80s, principally through uh, lobbying by the big pharmaceutical companies to change the regulations for it. Um, opium was the original drug, uh, which was highly addictive. And then uh, morphine was invented and marketed as an alternative, a non-addictive alternative to opium. Of course, it turned out to be as addictive. And then heroin was created as a non-addictive alternative to the opioid and morphine. Uh, methadone has been created. But the current wave was um, Oxycontin uh, uh, and similar drugs, which were one molecule off from heroin, which were originally marketed as a non-addictive uh, uh, alternative to the other opioids. And then it was wrapped in a, a time-release coating and marketed for chronic pain. Uh, if you know your biology around addiction, one of the things that happens when you're using opioids is that the, the receptors that receive them, the endorphin receptors in the brain, are pruned back. So the longer you use it, the more tolerance you have because there are fewer receptors. And so uh, when you can get pharmaceutical grade um, narcotics and uh, you have uh, doctors who can just up the dosage, the dosages can get quite, quite high. One of the reasons that there are so many ODs uh, with uh, pharmaceuticals is that when people go into rehab or for treatment and they're in there for a few months, the receptors grow back and then the dose that they were previously taking becomes lethal uh, so that they'll leave the rehab and not really understand that they can't tolerate the doses that they were at before, take them and then and die from it. The other thing that happened was that they began to market the, the, the illegal uh, Mexican heroin to the middle class because of the advent of uh, cell phones and the internet. Um, they began uh, services like We Deliver, which will deliver anything to your door if you call them, including heroin. They also began to market it in, in individual doses rather than in bulk. So that the, the way that the laws are written, the, 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 um, uh, it's based on how much you have. And if, if it's not a large dose, then you're not arrested for dealing. You're just arrested for usage. You may or may not have picked up on this statistic. Uh, during the pandemic, the alcohol sales have gone up by 240%, so that there's also a much higher uh, incidence of people using. We don't really have a public health system in this country, which also may have been uh, become apparent from the pandemic um, in the way that we've been able to respond or not respond to it. And, um, so treatment in, in uh, this country for a drug addiction or any kind of addiction is largely uh, through insurance companies or through private pay. Um, the insurance companies, uh, the health insurance companies in this country have for the last 20 years or so been compiling a database of uh, treatment failures uh, so that they could legally um, pull out of paying for treatment because they can demonstrate that it doesn't work. 
one of the reasons that this um, isn't actually above board is because the insurance companies began to fund only treatments that they already knew didn't work so that they could develop a database of treatments that don't work and then stop funding them. What they've done instead is they've replaced uh, treatment for uh, addiction with uh, pharmaceuticals. One of the interesting things about particularly the opioid addiction in this country is that the easy availability of very addictive painkillers uh, that then lead to a high tolerance that, that lead to uh, negative consequences from that um, are then withdrawn and then uh, replaced with a, 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 the, the newer version of um, methadone. So a, a maintenance dosage of a narcotic that you can essentially take for the rest of your life. So they pull you in quite early with the with the one drug and then switch you to a lifelong addiction to another. With alcohol, the, the consequences are, are uh, fairly minimal uh, and it's widely marketed as, as a lifestyle enhancer. Um, I suppose if one out of nine people becomes addicted, that, that, that isn't uh, catastrophic in terms of the business model. Um, <clears throat> this is a meditation and attachment uh, um, class. And so we now get to the uh, part where this makes sense in the context of this. The underlying cause of addiction, we think, is a, an attachment disturbance, that uh, addiction is uh, as in, in an avoidant strategy so um, or tied or highly correlated to an avoidant attachment strategy so dismissing or a disorganized attachment strategy that is um, an avoidant in nature uh, if you uh, have been around here and, and have heard me talk about attachment uh, when we develop emotional regulation skills, we all begin as auto-regulators. We're just within ourselves and within our capacity to understand ourselves, and we auto-regulate ourselves. And then if our caregiver comes and they come regularly enough to us that we begin to see that they have a positive effect on us, we begin to orient towards somebody coming to take care of us. And so we become external regulators focused on the experience of the caregiver. If the caregiver comes consistently enough and in a good enough way, then we begin to enter into a collaborative relationship with the caregiver uh, where we develop collaborative emotional regulation skills and we interject the skills that the caregiver is bringing to us and develop mastery in using them on our own so that we can then go out and explore and be emotionally regulated when we do that. When you look at the underlying cause of addiction, what you're seeing is that the addiction is centered in people that don't have good enough care, that they even become external regulators. It's mainly auto-regulators. Uh, you have the organized and disorganized version of that. And the organized version of um, uh, avoidant attachment strategy in adults, it's called dismissing, and you see a 30% a rate of addiction in that group. And in the disorganized group, 
in the fearful avoidant is the way, way we would call it. 70% of fearful avoidant people are addicted. You see some uh, crossover with people who have a mixed uh, addiction, uh, a mixed attachment outcome. So really the addiction becomes this dependency on substances to replace people as the main regulator. And so when you begin to look at uh, the, the uh, underlying causes of this, what you're looking at are people with attachment disturbances that are related to the uh, avoidant uh, end of the, the spectrum. And so uh, the underlying cause being this avoidant attachment strategy, one of the things that needs to happen in order for there to be a long-term outcome that's positive in terms of the addictions is to begin to address the underlying attachment disturbances that people have. Um, if you've been around Metagroup much and uh, involved yourself in the meditation and attachment uh, uh, work that we do here, you understand that, that this is largely a relational repair. Uh, it's somewhat informational. There's a meditation practice component and uh, also this relational pair, uh, um, piece that needs to happen. And this is problematic in our culture because our culture is not set up to address it in this way. As we move into this uh, increasing uh, cost of healthcare and that the, the, um, the large health insurance companies um, are moving more and more toward pharmaceutical only response to this, there's very little money uh, for treatment for this uh, in a re relational way, which means that there's simply not a good way to address addiction in our culture, except by substituting uh, substances that are uh, less uh, debilitating to the people who have addiction and having them maintain the, the process of addiction uh, throughout their life. This comes at an extraordinary cost to us. One of the things to look at as to why this is, uh, the way that it is, is also because of the politics of addiction in this country. Um, when it was considered simply a moral failing, which is all the way up until Nixon, then uh, there were approaches where uh, you were simply supposed to improve your moral condition. And so you look at programs like uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which are uh, basically a Christian faith-based program that are meant to, to, through the grace of God, repair the moral deficiencies that allow you to engage in this depraved lifestyle. Um, but when uh, the 60s happened and there was a lot of pressure for social justice, um, uh, yes, uh, there's a note um, about uh, the Oxford group, which was the organization that preceded uh, AA, uh, AA came, came out of that. In the 60s, when there was this movement for social justice and there was a rebirth of the left in this country, the Nixon administration joined with uh, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. There was a, a, a huge uh, problem of 
fatalities and injuries related to drunk driving at the time. And they began the war on drugs, which was actually a war on uh, the social, people seeking social justice and the left in this country, an intentional strategy that they could use to um, imprison a, one of the things about it at the time was, of course, the association of the loss of the right to vote with um, a felony conviction. And uh, because the view of addiction at the time was that it was a moral failing, it was very easy to uh, attack these groups uh, and create this perception that actually they were degenerate drug addicts and deserving of the legal intervention in a way that um, had it been simply a medical problem would not have been so easy. Can you see our country taking people who develop cancer from smoking uh, and put them in prison because of that? Or people who develop diabetes from using sugar and put them in prison for that? It doesn't make any sense at all. And it isn't an effective treatment. 70% um, of cancers in humans are directly related to tobacco use. Uh, and yet it's totally uh, um, uh, available at, at any supermarket in this country. Um, there was big noise about uh, the tobacco companies creating a settlement for the, the cost. And they settled for $280 billion during the Clinton period, which you may remember or not. But it was never collected and they never paid it. It was a, basically a show trial. You have the same thing happening now with the opioid addiction uh, problem happening. Um, the Sackler family, which owned Purdue Pharma, which was one of the leaders in the marketing of Oxyco uh, OxyContin, agreed to pay a $280 million settlement. <clears throat> but when you put that up against the cost of the, ten, the, the trillions of dollars that this has cost, it's a fig leaf, really. Um, the Sackler family themselves moved $18 billion out of the country weeks before the settlement to a jurisdiction where there's no bank reciprocity, so they can't even get the money if they wanted to. Um, so this is the climate that we're in, in terms of understanding why these conditions exist. Um, in places where they have changed this, and if you remember, if you were aware of this in our last election cycle in um, uh, Oregon, they decriminalized everything. If you look at countries where they've done this, uh, Portugal, for instance, has decriminalized everything. They've they've closed all of their uh, all of the or the majority of their prisons, and um, the addiction rate uh, has fallen by fifty eight percent. They uh, have made. Uh, treatment available at no cost to anyone who wants to take it. And the cost of the treatment is one-tenth of the cost of the incarceration that they were paying before. In Finland, that's also happened. They've emptied all of the prisons and closed them because um, if you look at these uh, draconian laws that were created for the war on drugs, it creates this enormous uh, in problem with incarceration. In this country, 70% of the people in prison are in prison for drug-related offenses. Um, 
this is an enormous amount of money and, and it funds the police, it funds the court system, it funds the lawyer system. Um, did I say prisons? Anyway, there's these four groups that make an enormous amount, 70% of their budgets from uh, keeping the uh, drugs illegal. We then have this commercial treatment program, this for-profit treatment program, which um, doesn't work. So you, you pay for treatment that doesn't provide a solution, uh, relapse, and then pay for treatment again. Um, are you getting the picture of what the, the, the conditions are of this? <clears throat> When you look at it through the attachment lens, what you're seeing is that these injuries happen very early in people's lives. The child who grows up with good enough care, uh, with uh, sensitive uh, and nurturing caregivers moves out of the uh, auto-regulating stage in five to eight months of early life. And if you don't have that sensitive enough care, you don't move out of it. And so the injury is very early. Um, as you grow and develop, uh, dismissing people tend to be pretty good explorers, but they tend to be secondary explorers. They tend to completely suppress awareness of their emotions they tend to avoid intimate relationships where they might be able to develop some kind of emotional regulation strategies that are not uh, dependent on external uh, either processes or substances to help them regulate. Um, so you're talking about individuals who tend to be in a lot of pain. When you when you put an EEG on, a, on children and uh, evaluated in correspondence to their underlying attachment mechanism, the children that are suffering the most are the, the avoidant children. They suppress awareness of their emotions so they don't do anything to help them regulate the emotional experience. It's a completely unconscious thing. It does continue to inform the nature of their responses to stimulus that they receive. They just don't have conscious awareness of it. For the rest of the attachment strategies where there is conscious awareness of what the underlying emotional conditions are, you can then take steps to affect the regulation of your emotions. And so the, the dismissing uh, uh, adults tend to uh, want some system for emotional regulation which they can use, which doesn't allow them to be dependent on people who are the the gold standard for regulation. Is that all making sense? You're getting the picture. It's kind of grim, I think, when I, when I look at it all together like this. There are so many forces. Christian, is your hand up? Uh, I don't want to de derail too much, but uh, I've read some stuff about um, psychedelics being used for treatment of addiction, I guess specifically psilocybin. And I think the studies that have been done were for uh, smoking cessation and alcohol, and maybe perhaps there's there's stuff for other for other uh, drugs. Um, but I'm curious if uh, 
if you're aware of any of this and if, if you think that, uh, like I haven't heard any of this in relation to attachment, but I'd be curious if there's research or if there's any thought about whether these drugs affect the attachment mechanism. I don't know of any research that uh, they affect the attachment mechanism. Um, they do have a tendency and there's some uh, research, although I don't know how conclusive it is that it resets the brain out of depression. Um, and there, the, there's a lot of uh, interest now in plant medicine uh, in terms of the spiritual community because it creates a perception of uh, uh, a way out of that rigidity and the solidness of the self-experience. And so you open into these um, no self-experiences uh, that you get ordinarily from meditation uh, if you go deeply enough into it. Um, I, I guess um, my uh, um, gut reaction to it in terms of uh, working with addiction is that it, it it's, might be useful in the sh short term to change a depressed uh, condition or to open up uh, some sense of uh, spirit, but that as a long-term uh, way of treating addiction, it's not going to be so useful. Um, we talk about uh, uh, two models for addiction treatment. One is a harm reduction model and one is a uh, abstinence model. Um, most of the time, people do not have a single addiction. They have a pattern of using uh, processes and also substances in a combination way that is organized to uh, regulate a wide variety of experiences the same way that if you developed a robust uh, 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 emotional regulation strategies, you'd be able to handle any situation that arose with some way of doing it. What I tend to prefer is doing the underlying attachment work and then developing emotional regulation skills, which are meditation based because they don't, you don't lose them in stressful situations. Um, it's one thing to uh, go into a, a controlled environment, taking a controlled dosage of a, of a psychedelic or a plant and then have people guiding you through that process. It's another thing entirely to begin another round of self-medication uh, in a way to alleviate the, the, uh, uh, the difficulties with other strategies for self-medication. Um, um, way back in the day in, in the 12-step rooms, we used to call that changing tables on the Titanic. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, if you can begin to address the underlying uh, attachment conditioning, that you can begin to address these patterns of, of use, and that if you can begin to develop uh, supportive relationship networks around you, that the need to use becomes less and less uh, uh, important, and you can move out of that uh, way of being in the world. I don't think that taking um, a plant uh, would teach all of that, nor create around you the social network that you would need. 
Oh, George. Uh-huh. The um, uh, Brown, um, Dan Brown, I know, does hip hypnosis and talks about Ericksonian hypnosis and he worked with hypnosis. And if that was to be utilized with addiction people to allow these concepts to go deeper, I think right. I think that could be beneficial. And then also if you take you know refuge recovery that Noah started in uh, recovery dharma, um, the stuff you're teaching uh, has yet to infiltrate or maybe the stuff you're teaching could actually be a potential for a future recovery group that's lacking right now that they don't have these components. Uh, a, a group that could be started, including yourself for the Marlats, mindful-based relapse prevention, you know, like a, some kind of thing like that. Right. I am doing this uh, retreat through the Recovery Dharma Collective on December 12th and 13th, uh, so that you can find it there. Um, the the program that we've developed here at Metagroup is is based on Marlat's research, and it uses the three pillar approach that Dan Brown developed in order uh, to repair attachment. Uh, we have it organized around these four modules that uh, are based on Marlat's work. Marlat identified eight main conduits for relapse, and we've uh, organized our a program around uh, four modules, uh, the um, combining some of his. The first one is uh, um, uh, craving versus urging. To understand that uh, something happens, uh, uh, it, it triggers the mind to think of an emotional regulation strategy. And if you're set up so that uh, addiction or some uh, process or substance addiction is the way that you regulate that experience than you think of using. And then if you allow the mind to engage in the thought processes of using either through uh, fantasy or recollection, you don't address the underlying stressor. Often what happens is that the stress level affects your cognitive ability to make a, a, a coherent decision about what to do and you end up lapsing, which opens you to the uh, what Marlat called the uh, abstinence violation effect, where you have shame and regret about having lapsed, which is difficult emotions that need to be regulated. And often that creates a cycle of uh, lapsing until you um, are back using at the level you were at before you attempted to stop. The second one is called um, uh, stress, anger, and depression. Uh, here's where the, the, the use of psychedelics is ha helpful because it often resets the depressed mind. But uh, when the, the depression is caused by thinking, uh, you simply think yourself right back into the depressive state. Stress is something that needs to be regulated. Um, if you regulate it by using self-generated emotion, which generates afflictive emotional states, then uh, you generate these intense emotional states, but if you begin to exceed the bandwidth of what the, the brain can tolerate, then the limbic system shuts down to prevent the release of any more neurochemicals, and that's the experience of depression. The third one is a persistent negative emotion, and this really relates to the somaticized emotional experience that a lot of people who have trauma hold in the body. So when you're looking at the group of people who have 
the most, uh, the highest uh, correlation of addiction is the people who have disorganized attachment and disorganized attachment is highly correlated to trauma. And so you have a lot of uh, in, uh, intense experiences of afflictive emotion, which have been somaticized. And the, the constant experience of those uh, afflictive emotions is, is one of the conduits toward relapse you use to medicate the emotional experiences of that. And the last one, which is really a combination of three of the MARLAT uh, um, indicators is uh, difficult interpersonal relationships. Uh, the main cause of relapse in uh, people is social isolation. It's painful in itself. If you can't put around yourself functioning relationships uh, the, the, and your tendency is to remove yourself from relationships when they become too overstimulating, then uh, the, the social isolation that comes from that strategy for regulating is the thing that causes most people to relapse. In order not to have that happen to you, you have to be able to uh, be engaged in a social group. One of the, the reasons that the 12-step world works so well is because um, it's a social group that you can come to that are, isn't dependent on in, uh, individual relationships. The meeting is there uh, and, and there, there's many uh, protocols set in place to greet people and to uh, communicate with them warmly so that they can feel some connection to a group and and the emotional regulation that comes from that is then available to them and they, they don't have to be so isolated. Um, is that all making sense? The, um, our early conditioning affects the way that we create the view of the world and then we go about operating in the world as if that's the way that the world is. And depending on how we do that, we end up in this place where uh, the world and being alive is so painful that we then need to take uh, substances that engage in behaviors that relieve that painfulness. Um, most of the substances that are strong enough to relieve that painfulness also um, have a tolerance built into them. So if you remember uh, um, drinking, if you don't drink that much, you have a glass of wine or, or a, a cocktail or a beer and you have an effect from it. But if you drink enough that you develop a tolerance to it, one is no longer enough to have an effect. So then you have to take two. And in taking two, you still have that effect, but if you develop a tolerance to it, if you use it often enough, and then you have to take three to have the same relieving effect. But the same, that, that higher dose may cause uh, cognitive impairment or judgment issues, um, and that you then may begin to have external consequences to the using, which is typically the cycle that happens. But then if you use enough at that level, you have to use even more and the impairment becomes greater and the consequences become greater. Uh, and then uh, the social structures that have uh, that you've been able to create around you begin to come apart. In order to, uh, you don't really have a choice about whether you emotionally regulate or not. Uh, you ha you have to emotionally regulate. 
the body-mind can't tolerate the dysregulation. But you do have agency in how you regulate. If you grow up in a family system where using uh, substances or process addictions is the way that you learn to regulate, then that's what you're going to learn to do. And what you're going to need to do now is learn alternatives to that. And so that's really what this approach is, uh, to uh, retrain through the use of uh, ideal parent figure protocol, the capacity to be in relationship, and then through the meditation uh, strategies uh, to learn meditation-based emotional regulation skills uh, so that you can uh, uh, train yourself out of the, in, in the 12-step world, we used to call it stinking thinking that leads you to uh, drinking. Because this class is a meditation class, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, this process of tracking the thinking process. So it's a development of metacognition. And so we're going to spend tonight's practice mainly focused on tracking uh, thought. Um, one of the tricky things about tracking thought is that the content of thoughts can be quite sticky and pull you in. So uh, it's very common to get caught up into thinking and then come back and then reset and get caught up into thinking and come back and reset. Um, is that all making sense? I think that the, instruction, the instructions are simple enough that if I just give them, uh, you'll be able to um, uh, track it. So uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, settle into your meditation posture. So any comments or questions about what we did? I had a question, George, regarding um, the clear talk, the differentiation between clear talk and the other kinds of talk, and what, what would be some examples uh, of that? like verbal examples? Well, a one-off thought versus a repeating thought? Is that what you mean? Um, or clear talk versus maybe gibberish? But that, that's not what you're referring to. Then. Like some kind of irrational thought or kind of versus something that's logical or rational? No. Uh, clear talk are the words whose me meaning you can understand. So even if it were... A, uh, a series of non sequiturs, as long as you can understand the words, that would be clear talk. Mm -hmm. There is a vibratory activity that's often in an auditory thinking space, which is just a vibratory sound without any words being differentiated. And if you get highly concentrated and focus on that uh, vibratory energy, what you'll notice is that the cognition of what the clear talk will be precedes the clear talk arising out of that. But most of the time we're not paying attention. So the clear talk just enters the mind and, and we don't notice that process of the vibratory energy, then the, the cognition and then the clear talk arising. Uh, so if you notice that the mind is engaged in just uh, a running commentary then you begin to evaluate the quality of the commentary as being one-off thoughts that are typically related to the present moment and repeating thoughts that are typically related to the past or the future. So memory or planning, worrying, that sort of thing. Is that making sense? 
<clears throat> yeah, like sometimes I, when I'm meditating, I have thoughts about uh, what I did with my bicycle or having a, the brakes fixed or what am I going to have for dinner after, you know, metagroup meditation. Right. Or sometimes I'll have Where's a the bell? <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a sexual fantasy. Uh, right. You know that I, I oh no that's that's not proper Marie you, you know no, uh, oh. no sexual fantasies here yes the Buddha is listening <laughs> <laughs> the sexual fantasy is often a repeating thought because it's not related to the present moment typically so that would be something that I would I would uh, investigate as a repeating thought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one-off thoughts are like, what was that noise? Um, ouch, this hurts, or whatever it is. Um, in a way, it's like hear out or, or, or feel in, maybe. It's related right. to that. Well, the internal process of self and thinking typically is internal um, visual experience, internal auditory experience, and emotion in the body. So that's what we're mainly tracking. Uh, if you're distracted by something that's happening outside of the body, often there's a thought in relationship to that. So then those would be activations of external sight, external sound, or the felt sense of the body. So in some, in some, in some sense, uh, thoughts come before feelings or feelings can come before thoughts. Could it be both ways? It's omnidirectional. Any, any sensing activity can activate any other sensing activity. I like to teach it in a linear way so that you can learn to uh, identify it and explore it, but then uh, understand that that's artificial and it's meant as, a, as an organize, organized uh, learning strategy. But once you, uh, once you learn it well enough, then you can begin to notice that it's just um, popcorning all over the place. Good enough? Yeah, cool. Thanks. All right. Someone else? Christian. Um, I, oh, I'll try and make this concise. Um, I was sort of <laughs> off in so many directions. Um, but I was, uh, I was trying to do like rest, but like I would have like a moment of rest, but mostly I would just have like looping music, just looping all, all over the place and so so that kind of like I don't know if that's a repeating thing because it doesn't have any um lyrics or really content but then I I sort of got tired of it and just went to the body and I just realized how like uncomfortable I was and it wasn't until I kind of sat with that for a while that I I started to realize I had some thoughts about how uncomfortable it was. So I kind of went from the other direction and then I seemed to have gone into like a, like a pool. Uh, and I was just like, I was just like raging, but it was like, it was, I stayed with it. So it was something, but it wasn't at all, you know, the practice. So I so, guess my question is about like, about what to do with music at least. Music is a repeating thought. So you just create a, a label for it and then check visual thinking to see if there's something that's more discernible there and then drop down into the body and see what emotion that the music is generating. But then you also discovered another piece, which is that there's often an underlying feeling state that causes the mind to generate the thought. 
so that the painfulness in the body was likely the thing that was causing the mind to generate the music as a way of self-soothing. Yeah, I've noticed that music is definitely a like a like a coping strategy for me in all kinds of like stressed out situations. So then what you've identified is the the activity of self-generated emotion as a regulation strategy. That's what I was trying to get you to see. So you saw it clearly. Mm -hmm. um, understand that uh, repeating or a tune, we like to call those tunes. That's usually the label I use for them. That was like, that was the label I was doing. Cause I think last time I did this meditation with you, I had the same problem. <laughs> so tunes, um, it's one of the reasons I don't like to go to the gas station cause they're always piping music in. It's always catchy pop and it catches my mind. And then I have to listen to it for hours after I leave. <laughs> tunes are generally thought of as a skillful means of emotional regulation. So you don't necessarily need to do anything about that. It's only when the mind is engaged in thoughts that generate afflictive states that uh, you uh, want to uh, change that. So good, you have the insight. Mm -hmm. Someone else? Something else. All right. Um, oh, George? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, since the days of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's been a lot of things since then, like uh, the secular recoveries, like Life Ring, uh, the Secular Organization for Sobriety, and then Smart Recovery is very popular now, but they rely on CBT and, and REBT. So they're going for a real cerebral kind of try to engage the uh, prefrontal cortex. Right. And, and build that kind of muscle. Um, but the, the, um, the communication and people getting together uh, is one of the main ingredients, I guess, you, like you said, of AA. But now with LifeRinger or SMART, you do have people getting together and communicating and developing uh, like recovery dharma without the overlay, the religious or philosophical overlay of AA, right. which I had a therapist says that it's not very helpful. The powerlessness, the reliance on a higher power, maybe the shaming that goes on or some narcissistic behavior there. So well, it's, any of the abstinence only programs are going to um, create a social hierarchy that's really artificial and also create these uh, boomerang effects where lapses uh, end up in relapses. Uh, the God component also is, um, it's not so much the, um, the belief or disbelief in God, but it's that uh, God's grace is the curative peace uh, and so that you don't have to do anything in order for that to happen. Um, the main value I think of, of of that aspect is the community, that you can be a member of a community that's there and uh, regulating you and that you can uh, develop the skills of relationship there. That's the piece. Um, I am familiar with the other programs um, too. I do tend to think of them as um, uh, providing mainly the um, community aspect. Um, and they've got they've gotten very popular. And since COVID, there's so many Zoom meetings that many there there's a lot more availability to people. Right. 
which is a benefit of uh, the COVID the side effect, yeah. Right. Uh, it also has the limit that you're not actually in the physical energy of people, which is part of the thing that's necessary for emotional regulation. Um, but yeah, I hear you. Good. Um, next week, Thursday is Thanksgiving, so there'll be no class. Uh, December 3rd, we're starting a meditation and attachment level two class, which will go for six months. There's 12 classes. You can sign up with mentoring sessions or without mentoring sessions. And we do have some scholarship funds available for that. If you take a look at the website, metagroup.org, it's on there. Uh, if you want scholarship uh, uh, help, uh, just call the office and we can set that up for you. December 7th, uh, I'm going to read again from my book, uh, The Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect. And hope, hopefully there won't be some big uh, um, political hoo-ha that happens at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to focus on the sections of the book that are related to the AIDS crisis of the late 1970s and early 80s in New York. The, the, the book is a the Lower Manhattan Dormitory Effect, a memoir of 1979 New York and photographs and lyric prose poetry. So uh, it does focus on that period. Um, the 12th and 13th is a, a weekend retreat that I'm doing in conjunction with Recovery Dharma Collective, which is going to take uh, um, uh, whoever attends through the four modules of the Metagroup Attachment uh, Meditation and Attachment for Addiction Curriculum. So uh, you can sign up for that uh, if you want to, either through uh, Recovery Dharma or on our website. Um, on um, December 28th, I'm doing a, starting a six-day virtual retreat, which runs through uh, January 2nd. So uh, that week, there'll also be no class. And then the week after that, I'm, um, I'm going to take a vacation. I don't know that I'm going to go anywhere, but I'm not going to work, which is a sorely needed rest for me. So there'll be no class during that uh, as well. So we'll, we'll send out an email letting everybody know. But uh, in the coming weeks, uh, there uh, there's, there's going to be three uh, Thursdays where there's no class. Um, I do offer the classes on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. So I offer the class, the teachings freely, and then I hope that you'll support me through donations. Uh, any amount is appreciated. It helps um, pay my overhead and also support the work that Metagroup is doing. There's links to make donation on the website or in the email that you may have received about the class. Um, if you don't have resources, then uh, there's no need to make a donation. Uh, the community is very happy to support the practice period for you. Thank you for coming and uh, we will see you next time. Bye now. <laughs>